HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Today, I'm excited to welcome Scott Conant to the program. Many people know him because he has appeared on TV uh, many, many times. He's been a judge on Chopped, Top Chef. He's been on dozens of episodes of cooking programs. But today, we're really going to talk about his cooking pedigree and uh, the history of his cooking career in New York and beyond. He's received three stars from the New York Times for Limpero and Scarpetta, four stars from the Miami Herald for Scarpetta Miami, uh, Best New Restaurant 2003 from the James Beard Foundation, and he was a Best New Chef from Food & Wine Magazine in 2004. He cooks a lot of Italian food. We're going to talk about that and his childhood growing up in Waterbury, Connecticut. Scott, welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having my childhood in Waterbury, Connecticut. Let's, <laughs> let's start at the way, way beginning. So Waterbury is pretty close to New York. It's about yeah. 90 or so minutes yeah. outside. I'm curious, did you spend time coming into the city eating? Where did the passion for food come from at the beginning of your life? Well, I, I was a chubby kid. So I think that was my, <laughs> my main motivator. <laughs> main motivation was just getting as much food in my belly as possible. And that hasn't changed, which is, which is the good news. Um, no, I, uh, I, 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 my father uh, grew up on a farm in the north of Maine. So uh, the, it was a potato farm. So, you know, they, they had animals and potatoes, essentially. Uh, and so his, 
his that there was always that respect for the land, so to speak, and definitely a respect for what was on the table. Um, and my mother, uh, her her parents uh, are Italian, were Italian, um, so there was always that you know again uh, that uh, traditional Italian American tabletop uh, that we grew up with, and Sundays um, at my grandparents, and this memory of my grandmother with this big wooden board rolling out pasta and things like that. So did you actually, did, did a lot of your pasta technique that you utilize in your restaurants, was any of it from grandma or did you just kind of see it and then you went on to kind of learn your own style? I, I went on to learn my own style. Um, you know, I, I spent a long time later in life working at San Domenico on, on Central Park South, uh, which is now Morea, um, and, and then traveling through Italy and things like that. So my grandmother passed when I was young, but all my mother's aunts and my cousins and things like that definitely inspired uh, you got a food job really early yeah. in life. You were working at this restaurant. Do you remember the name of the first spot where you were washing dishes? The Sea Loft and, in Waterbury. And yes. what type of place was that? And were you <laughs> was it a was it a money job? Was it to meet girls? Like what, what what was the impetus for starting to work at such a young age? The 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 main impetus in the beginning was to buy a car. By the time I was sixteen, okay. so I wanted to be able to save a little bit of money. Good goal, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's you know seems seems normal, but. Uh, I'll never forget walking into that kitchen for the first time. And I went to a vocational school simultaneously. So as I got this job uh, at this restaurant, I also um, couldn't get into the plumbing program of the vocational school that I went to. So as a second choice, I chose culinary arts. Um, It was the only thing that I was good at besides gym, you know? (laughs) So it was the only class that I'd honestly gotten an A in besides, uh, besides gym. So I, I just started working, and I'll never forget walking into that kitchen for the first time. I played a lot of baseball as a kid, uh, and that sense of team and that camaraderie was was important to me because, you know, it was kind of all for one, one for all, you know? Uh, and, and that's a similar feeling that I had walking into a professional kitchen. I'm curious about the hours. You know, you were putting in pretty long weeks there, I read. Yeah. And so you're going to this uh, Caner uh, vocational school mm-hmm. where you're taking these culinary classes, right? And then, but you're also working. Uh, did your Did your parents support that decision? Did it seem crazy or normal at the time to be having basically like a full-time job as a 14-year-old? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I never thought about it. I, you're a kid, you just do, you, you just do, you, you do what's in front of you, mm-hmm. you know, you put your head, I put my head down. I was, I've always been one of those people. Um, but now as I speak to my mother, I think they were just happy I wasn't out on the streets you know, roaming around, doing mm-hmm. drugs, acting like a jackass. You know, I think yeah. that was that was the main thing for them. They knew where I was every night. So it gave you not only camaraderie, but it gave you kind of uh, a structure to build off of. I'm curious about uh, wh- when did you make the decision to go to culinary school formally? And what was that experience like? You went to the CIA, right? I went to CIA. Well, you know, it was interesting because I'm not from a family where – um, continued education is necessarily a thing. I was really, I think, the only person in my immediate family to go to to to, to school after high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my definitely on my father's side, no, none of my cousins really went. What's to, your went dad to, do? My father was a machinist, a toolmaker, so okay. he worked in a in a shop, you know, in, a, in making. You worked know, the, with his hands. Worked with his hands. Yeah. He built machines that would make uh, the tips of erasers, you know, that the erasers hold in, in a pencil. 
So things like that. I mean, really very middle class. And that's what Waterbury is, a very middle class town with a lot of shops and now a lot of abandoned uh, factories. Um, So this idea of working in a kitchen for for my parents was like, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean? There were no fancy restaurants that we were familiar with. So uh, they thought I was going to be flipping burgers until I was, you know, retired. (laughs) But the CIA is definitely... Well, now more so, but it's definitely sort of one of the most fancy and most oh, prestigious yeah. culinary schools. It has a lot of French tradition and technique infused to it. So was that a, uh, a big wake-up call for you, the toques and the early wake-up times? R- really rigorous, right? It was rigorous, but you know, it, was something, it was nothing that I've ever, I hadn't done before in the sense where after I'd worked at the Sea Loft, I went to go work at a, a hotel with a bunch of CIA grads, uh, and they were they were tough on me. You know, they, they saw my potential and they were tough. But also, uh, there was one guy, I'll never forget it. He was a CIA grad, a guy, a guy named Ron Pascal. Uh, and he said to me, you know, you can't, you, can't go, you can't move to New York. You're not good enough. You're not good enough to live in New York City. So I thought, I found that to be wildly um, offensive, but also a huge motivator. <laughs> he, he, so he challenged you and you kept it in the back of your mind. And yeah. so... You, how long did you spend at CIA? It's the, you were at Hyde Park? I was in Hyde Park, and that was before there was a four-year program. So it was a two-year program that I did there. And did you end up coming straight to New York? I did my externship here, and I did it at San Domenico. And uh, that was the first time that I'd seen Italian food at that level. Um, I was just accustomed to the things that I grew up with, or the things in the local restaurants in, in Waterbury. So. Can you kind of give us a snapshot of, uh, you know, at that uh, obviously high end Italian food is very present now in New York yes. City. But at that time, are, are you kind of saying that there was only like mom and pop red sauce joints and you hadn't had you not experienced I a had, fancy Italian meal before you started working at San Dominican? That's right. Okay. Never. No. And frankly, they didn't exist that much. Okay. There was basically in New York City, there was Felidia. Um, which has its rusticity, you know, it has a rustic element to, at Felidia, but San Domenico was super high end. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to describe exactly how fancy that restaurant was, um, but it was fancy and pretentious. I remember they, they actually asked JFK Jr. to leave one night because he walked in without a jacket. So that's I mean, okay, that's, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. I mean, it was JFK Jr. And yeah. He was with Daryl Hannah and he couldn't sit down. Wow. <laughs> that's at, so that was, if it's the Morea space, that's at 59th, right? 59th Cent- Circle. Central Park South. Okay. Exactly. So that's uh, pretty far from Waterbury. Yeah. So where are you yes. living at that time? I was, you're going to, you're taking the train to Central Park every day. You're getting off. It's a no, soup crowd. What, no, are you, what are you doing? I, I was, I actually somehow finagled an apartment inside that building where San Domenico is at 240 Central Park South. Swanky. And I, and I paid for it. I mean, <laughs> we, we somehow, we, we had three of us, four of us inside a studio apartment that we, <laughs> that we, we all lived there. It was disgusting. But uh, we, and we worked. I mean, we were working 90, 100 hours a week. All food guys in the apartment? All food guys. And yeah. uh, at a very young age, at 24, you become CDC at, uh, is it Il Toscanaccio? Il Toscanaccio, was, yeah. Okay. That was a Pino Longo restaurant. Yeah. And so that's pretty young. Uh, were you ready? No. What's, what's that moment no. like when you get tapped, when you're CDC, you're 24, and you're, I mean, are you faking it? I mean, yeah, there was a <laughs> lot of faking it. What does it feel like? There was a lot of, you know, I, I've never been afraid to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so uh, there was a lot of uh, questions being asked. But also at the time, there was a lot of direction coming from up above. Cesare Casella was the executive chef of Coco Pazzo and Toscanaccio. And uh, Cesare had a very different style of cooking than what I was accustomed to from my San Domenico days. It was much more rustic. There were a lot of herbs and deep fried herbs and all this kind of stuff that we didn't even have a deep fryer at, uh, at San Domenico. So just to show you the differential, you know, mm-hmm. um, we had all our pastas. Uh, being made in here, we were using a lot of dry pasta, Toscanacho. So there was a there was a big change for me. But uh, the good news was uh, it taught me a different style. It taught me that balance of rustic and uh, you know the two schools of of Italian kitchen, La Cucina Rustica and the Alto Cucina. So really, it was that's where the balance started for me. Who's helping you navigate these waters? I mean, there's so many things to do as a CDC besides just working service. It goes so beyond that. Mm-hmm. And as someone who was in a kitchen with perhaps people that were much older than you and maybe had been at the restaurant for longer, I'm curious, yeah. how did you – did you have someone outside of the restaurant that you could look to for advice? Did you have a, a, either a peer or someone – around your age that was in the same position as you at all? You know, I, I, I wish that I did, you know, and now, now you're saying it, it makes a lot of sense to have had that person. I didn't have that person. I didn't have, I've really never had that person to help me with those directions in my life other than lawyers throughout my career, which <laughs> tend to be very expensive <laughs> and not always looking out for anyone else. Anyone else yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I want to just sidestep for a minute. You mentioned dry pasta versus yeah. making pasta in-house. This is something that I'm always curious about because I, f- I feel, and I'd love for you to explore this deeper, there are certain styles of pasta mm-hmm. which are totally acceptable to have be dry, right? And then there are yeah. certain styles of pasta that really you want to make daily. Can you talk a little bit about your personal opinion on which ones are good dry and which ones you would never purchase for your restaurant, yeah. for example? Well. You know, when it comes to fresh pasta, everybody has – you're always looking for the touch, right? You're looking for that consistency, that texture, and definitely the, the palatability of, um, you know, that, that combination of egg and, egg and flour ultimately, right? You're looking for that perfect uh, grind and texture and double zero flour or maybe single, single zero flour grind and things like that. Um, there's certain things that you need to use dry pasta for like spaghetti aglio you probably aren't going to use a fresh pasta for that you 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 you're you're mostly going to have to use a dry pasta but for that but why is that i think most of it's tradition uh, i th- i also think that it's all about texture it's also about the the way it kind of coats the pasta itself i don't i never have a definitive answer on that honestly okay. i it, there, the only thing that i've come up with in my in my years of cooking uh, in speaking to Italians or being in Italy or whatever it is, is always that it's, this is what we do. This is how we do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sometimes so, that's so enough. So some you know? falls on the side of tradition. That's right. Uh, and some of it is your interpretation as a chef and leader in the kitchen. That's right. Uh, what about El Dente? I was recently at a restaurant, had some pasta for some people at the table perfection for Mm -hmm. some people at the table they thought that it was undercooked so this goes back to the common restaurant problem which is to some people salt is too salty and other people need salt on the table so for you did you use timers in your restaurants to 
get the perfect uh, al dente quality? Did you just simply <laughs> show your chefs, your your yeah. cooks over and over and over until they nailed it the way you wanted it? Like, how do you? Because pasta pickups are so hard. It's not like cooking yeah. pasta at home. You can't just watch a pot, mm-hmm. keep taking noodles out and say, That's oh, right. it's done for me. It's like you might be picking up what? I don't know, eight, ten pastas at the same time. Or more. And, yeah, and, and different shapes with different cook times. That's so right. if you can talk a little bit about that. Too. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the challenges of, you know, uh, of working a pasta station. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's really, it's always the most difficult station in the kitchen because it is so precise and it, and the expression is pasta waits for no one. And that's, and that's kind of the point. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to, it needs to keep moving. Um, periodically we'll use timers. The timers that I use mostly are for the, to check the saline content of the water that, you know, obviously as that water flushes out and you're running a, a little bit of cold water to keep the level and it doesn't evaporate, sometimes it, it, it doesn't stay salty enough. So you need I, we every 15 minutes we're checking the saline content of, of the water. But more for the, the pasta itself, um, that's, you, that's something you got to work on. That's just that's identifying that touch. And so when you're saying identifying the saline content, are you talking about like an actual someone's taking a tasting spoon and tasting the water all, right. all by itself over the course of service? Someone's l- taking very small spoonfuls of water and saying, like, I got to tweak the levels of the salt. Absolutely. It's cool because, you know, working hot and working pasta and, you know, when you're manipulating meat over fire or you're cooking pasta, there's a lot of chemistry there. It doesn't really, you know, it just is cooking, but there's a lot of things at play. There's heat and there's, like you said, evaporation. That's right. So I'm, I'm curious at your restaurants, is there a specific type of range or pot that you, like, is there a style of pots that you use for when you're cooking pasta? Do you have a big bath with, um, with uh, pasta cookers that sit in the same bath? Like, how does that work? So we have, uh, here at Fusco, what we did is there's a guy on the Bowery who takes um, these, he takes basically a wok burner and he puts it uh, underneath this big vat that we fill fill up with water. Mm -hmm. And it's, of all the pasta cookers that I've used, whether they be from Italy or or from the U.S. or wherever they're from, these are the best. This guy, <laughs> this guy has these huge burners that just fire up this water, and uh-huh. we keep that going. And he's and he's he managed to he builds them. I mean, he does a great job at them, and they're relatively inexpensive considering. So it's pretty much just like a gigantic single pot. It's almost right. like a sink, basically. That's and right. you can uh, so then you're you're cooking all the various pastas in it using baskets. We'll use about, I think there's six baskets inside that, inside that vat. Cool. Yeah. And how many types of pasta are you doing at now at Fusco? At Fusco, we have five on the, on the menu. We have mm-hmm. a nudie, uh, which is a lobster nudie. Uh, we have uh, a two different type of filled pastas. We have a, a spaghetti pomodoro and uh, we have a garganelli with a duck, uh, with, excuse me, with a, a braised lamb neck. Yeah. You're obviously a pasta guy. You have I been do, for I do a lot of pasta. You've been you have been for a very long time. What what is um, your favorite shape to make over the course of your career? Do you have is there a certain uh, pasta dish that really you feel like speaks to you, or does it change? Um, there's there's things. I mean, I you know I dream about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, and it it sounds it sounds so cliche, but I really, I really do. <laughs> Some people dream of sex. I I think about I dream about pasta. <laughs> I, it's <laughs> not a bad thing to dream about, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it could be could be much worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I I had a dream the other night about uh, a uh, a 
a pork ragu with uh, with sea urchin and uh, squidding pasta. And uh, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out what this what this is. If it's tomatoes, tomato based ragu, or if it's not. But if, what the the thought process was, if it's like a, I, I mean, I woke up tasting this thing, right? So it's it's kind of weird. But pork belly that's really nice and crisp, tossed with a squidding pasta, and maybe there's some kind of tomato product inside that or not. Um, and then. Uh, a little bit of andouille also to add a, a, a backdrop of flavor, some more depth, uh, and then finish with sea urchin also. So, I mean, I, again, you know, chalatele, which is a, a milk-based pasta from Sorrento uh, with squid ink inside of it. So it's about, you know, it's about three inches long or so. Uh, kind of cut like a, like a linguine, but a little bit more broad. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but as I'm thinking out loud, thinking about this thing, that's, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta make this. So that's going to be the next pasta that we're identifying. The first time I ever ate squid ink pasta was at Scarpetta. Oh, really? I was a young cook and I just moved to New York and my brother and I were celebrating something and we went to Scarpetta and I had squid ink and he ordered it and I had never seen it on a menu before. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so that, that's. That to me sticks out as like a actual of a very tangible food moment yeah. in uh, in my New York City uh, food sort of exploration. Uh, I'm cool. here with Scott Conant. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about pasta. Stick with us. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Kimberly Chow. And I'm Amanda Dow. And we're the host of Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair on Heritage Radio Network. Recommended Reading is a show where we talk about what we're reading, listening to, and watching in the world of food media, between ourselves as well as with our special guests in and around the food world. Support Recommended Reading and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming by going to heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart, and you can become a member today. Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Scott Conant, and we're talking about some of his early career working in New York. I want to talk about 2013, when things really started to kind of uh, 
coalesce and come together for your career in sort of a, a forward-facing way. You had been cooking for a long time, obviously, in New York. But in 2003, your pasta was on the cover of Food & Wine. You were on the cover of Gourmet. And then in 2004, you were named Best New Chef by Food & Wine. So from then, you've basically been a very recognizable uh, chef and from then you've gone on to do quite a bit of TV. I, I, I want to know what did it feel like when you started to get really recognized um, being in the back kitchen for so many years? And I assume your guests obviously knew who you were, but at that point you're probably gaining a certain amount of notoriety nationally. Mm. Do you remember what that moment was like for you? Yeah. I had an ex-girlfriend come into uh, Limpato uh, at the time and she was like, you know, you're, you're like turning into a celebrity. And I was, I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't view myself that way. I, I'm a cook, you know, I, I, I still spend time in the kitchens where I'm most comfortable. Um, but I, th- I felt the switch, you know, that's, that's when things to your point, the, the popcorn started to pop mm-hmm. at, at that, at that point. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you, did you get pushback from people in the industry where there were people that were either in your restaurants or people that you had known for years that uh, they maybe weren't so happy that this was happening for you? Of course. There's always haters. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always going to be haters. Um, you know, there's people now that I, I, I am very uh, I'm a really grounded guy. I don't get too wrapped up in, in stuff. Um, if people see me and they recognize me from a TV show on the street and they, they want to take a picture, I'm, I'm appreciative. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of gratitude on my side. I've, I've struggled a lot in my career, even since 2003. So um, I realized that there's a balance. There's always ups and downs. Um, and the only thing that we can maintain is our attitude towards it, right? That's, that's, my, that's my biggest uh, – I'll walk with that stick uh, my, for the rest of my life. Um, but there's going to be haters, and there's 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 people now that that were really good friends back in the day that that are just turned off by the idea of, of television. Television is is a very weird thing, and and people's reactions towards it, it it's just strange. Yeah, I am I am curious about do you have a sort of inner dialogue because you just said you know. I'm a cook. I still spend a lot of time in the kitchen. You have several restaurants, and I definitely want to talk about the aspect of you managing several locations Mm -hmm. in different cities. But um, how do you feel about the fact that you're better known now for being on TV than you are for, uh, you know, your earlier career, especially to young people that – are only turning on the TV and have yeah. never experienced your restaurants in New York. Is that, how does that make you feel? It, it's, it's strange because I, like I said, I, like you said, I've been doing this for 30, almost 32 years now. Mm-hmm. It's been a long, <laughs> I can't believe I could say that, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting old, man. So, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, it's frustrating when I get somebody who, who on social media and they want to, they want to talk smack about oh, like, you don't even compete, you know, you don't want to do iron chef. I'm sorry, that wasn't the motivation back in the day. Back in the day, when I was coming up, none of this stuff existed. Yeah. That's not, I'm sorry, but moti- being an Iron Chef is not interesting to me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know if we could curse. I'm not yeah, you, curse. Can, you can say whatever you I want. Fuck that. Seriously. <laughs> I have no, I can imagine no worse every day waking up, having to compete on those shows. Like, I, I, I first of all, I hate to lose. Right. And I, the, 
the sting of losing is far worse than the thrill of winning for me. So I will not put myself in that situation. Like I just won't do it. <laughs> so, so, so let me just take it one step further and ask you, like, as someone who's done, I don't know, 30-some seasons of Chopped and you're on TV all the time, do you feel like these shows are uh, a detriment to professional cooks or do they help them? I, 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 I go back and forth with this a lot, but my, my all always, I think those, these shows are beneficial in the sense that they're realistic, right? Everybody has a story, right? It makes, the, it makes the TV great, the drama, but we judge food and food only. And there's, there's no getting around that. I, and people want to, people, of course, inevitably, they want to they take issue with some of our decisions. There's three people who taste that food. Three. And they're sitting at the judge's table. It could look beautiful and it can taste horrible. It could also look horrible and taste beautiful. You never know what you're going to get sometimes. And you're never going to be able to experience that unless you're tasting it. And I'm sorry, but when you're on the other side of the TV, it, it, you just don't get it. You mm-hmm. just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. I want to know about the the restaurant projects that you have. Over the years, you've uh, expanded pretty pretty rapidly, I would say, from an outward perspective. And now you've got several locations uh, across the United States. How many active restaurants do you have right now? Right now, I'm, I think I'm at five. <laughs> I'm shedding a couple. Okay. I, I'm shedding the, 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 the things that make less sense for me. I mean, okay. It's, you know, it's, it's funny the way life works because you want these things, right? And then all of a sudden you put yourself in a situation, you get it, and it's like, oof, I'm doing it with the wrong people or, or this isn't the right fit or what I really want to do, I can't do. So, you know, I hate signing a deal to sign a deal, um, I have I have infrastructure. I got I have bills to pay. I have a team that I have to 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 make sure gets their salary on a weekly basis. I'm a business person as well, um, and and I'm I'm learning as I'm going. To your earlier point, I don't necessarily have that one person that I could sit with and and get these get get the advice from. I've learned my business practice uh, through through trial and error. So so that means that. Pretty much, you're the sort of CEO, CFO of your of your <laughs> sprawling operation to a certain extent, or do you do you have a counterpart within this organization? I don't have a counterpart. I have a team, okay. um, and I like to. Th- I don't treat anybody like I'm their boss. That's not my that's not my management style. I have. I'm a believer that if if you're hired into this company, you're an adult. You should be able to manage yourself, um, and I hire you for your expertise. Mm-hmm. in what I'm hiring you for. And I, I give a tremendous amount of leeway until there's a problem. And we go through things, and I'm a big communicator. I, I insist on being communicated to. Uh, that's really the only thing I insist on. I want to know what everybody's doing. Um, and everybody has this, it's a very clear vision of, of the goal. The goal is to make people happy. And this is what we're going to do to make people happy. This is the vision of the restaurant. We need to work within the confines of this of this vision. How do you actually execute a restaurant that, uh, if it's in a hotel or if it's not in your home city, you live in Arizona now and you're opening up a restaurant in New York. I'm curious, how does that process work? Are you, do you craft the menu, train staff, and then sort of turn over the keys to a CDC and say, I'll be back and, you know, you're, you're in charge. Like who has, 
who has creative control and also who uh, is sort of your eyes and ears on the ground besides the CDC in the kitchen? So I have a corporate chef also. Okay. And we, we together with the, with the executive chef of the restaurant. So I, you know, my, my title would be chef owner or, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's executive chef. It doesn't matter. I still have to have an executive chef of the restaurant. I'm not going to pretend that I walk into a restaurant and, you know, I boss everybody around and then I turn around and walk out. That chef, is, it, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult balance for that chef to work under another chef, right? And I'm, I'm not going to pretend that that's not difficult for that person. And it wouldn't make sense for me to kind of push my weight around um, and devalue that individual's um, prowess, right? I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. And, and I think it would be undermining for that individual. So um, I, I think respecting, I think they appreciate being respected um, because I would appreciate being respected. I, I wouldn't want to work for somebody who's a dick and just walked in and started telling everybody what to do. Um, my, my corporate chef with me and that, that chef of the restaurant will go through the, that uh, initial menu. I'll have a few things. I kind of sit in a space and, and, and meditate what that experience should be like and, and what, um, what I would expect to eat or what would I would want to eat inside the, this venue. And it's, it's funny how it comes. It's funny how, um, you know, I'll sit and just be like spaghetti with, uh, with, with sea urchin and, uh, and ramps or, you know, I, I don't know, or in breadcrumbs or something like that. And, and that'll be the starting point of the menu. So that's, that's where I start from. And then I try to try to get the team on board with, with that vision. So is a normal, I assume you don't have a normal day, but like when you're, when you're on the ground at one of your restaurants, uh, how, how much is it of you just looking and then do you give notes back to like the GM and the executive chef or do you actually come out and and say things like, uh, I guess what I'm asking is there's sort of like this fine line where like you're obviously in charge, but like you said, you don't want to usurp their authority and Mm -hmm. chop their legs out from underneath them. But (laughs) I imagine that you walk around and see things that you don't like and see things that you want to change. So what are, what is the process for making tweaks, making changes? It it should always come from the chef of that restaurant. It shouldn't come from me, you know, and, and, and it's not that I don't spend time speaking to the team. Because I want to make sure that the team realizes that I'm not just some figure. You know what I mean? I, this fictitious uh, person who flies in or, or, you know, it's, first of all, I don't hire fans, right? I, I, think that's, I think that's weird. You know, I don't want people to be a fan of me. And then they, because inevitably I'm going to disappoint them if that's the case. It's kind of, because I'm, I'm, I'm not easy to work with. I'm, I'm tough and I'm demanding and I'm a perfectionist and I want things to be right. And if somebody's a fan, they're not going to, they're not going to understand what that, what that, where that, like, it's not that I'm angry. It's that I'm, I'm, I'm pointed. And sometimes there's, there's no niceties there. You know, it's just like, why is it like this? So I don't want to hire those people. I want people. And that's why it has to come from the chef also. So I'll pull the chef aside and be like, I saw this, 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 and this. And when I say that, I'll say, when you get a chance, fix it. And they all come to understand that doesn't, that doesn't mean when you get a chance, that means do it right now. <laughs> so I say it to be nice. <laughs> what I really mean, like fucking get it done mm-hmm. because I don't like this shit. And so, <laughs> so what are your greatest challenges with having multiple locations? So you've got 
uh, places in various uh, hotels mm-hmm. and casinos. These are like really large scale projects. Yeah. They're not you opened up a twenty five seat restaurant and you're you know able to interact with every customer. These are like really high volume, really high profile uh, locations. So how do you? How do you organize the infrastructure of your company beyond the executive chef with kind of you at the top? Like, yeah. how did you grow into basically having to have a full team? One yeah. day did you go from one to two or, you know, how do you figure that out? Well, yeah, I went from one to two and then I sold my shares of that group and I started the next group. And, and that's when we started Scarpetta. And now, obviously, on to the next one. So um, it started. it started with, you know, I do a lot of stuff. I do a lot of things between, and it's 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 futile to go through all the list of revenue streams that I'm trying to create for myself. But it, but it's important to note that I I do too many things to do one thing well, right? So that's why I need a team of people to do it for me, so I can come up with ideas, but then they have to execute, right? So, you know, that means I need an operations person. And I need a corporate chef. So I need someone to help me with that creative side as well. So the corporate chef also oversees the back of house finances. I also have a, a corporate controller to make sure that all this, so that my corporate controller, my director of restaurants, and my corporate chef are all underneath me. I also have someone who does all my events and marketing. I have a, a personal assistant. And then I have chefs who help me with different events when I have to travel and do. I'm not going to show up to an event in Mexico and start cooking. Like I, I just, my, my days are too difficult. I can't do that stuff anymore. I wish I could. I wish I could just shut off the phone and, and not worry about it. But I own, too, I own too many restaurants. I own too many businesses. I have too many things that I have to do. I've, I'm on too many deadlines, so to speak. Um, and I'm not saying that to sound like that guy. I mean, it's just the reality of my situation when I'm not Tom Colicchio, but my days are probably very similar to Tom's. You know what I mean? And that's, you know, know, when I think at the top of the totem pole, you know, those guys like Thomas Keller and JG and and Eric Repair and and Danielle, my days probably aren't that different from those guys. I need to figure out how to create that, that, uh, that money stream. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so as you continue to try to move forward and you are expanding, um, I'm, I want to know about Fusco. Why return to New York? You're talking about how difficult your day-to-day management is. There's a lot of moving pieces. You are, you're very candid about the fact that you can't be everywhere at the same yeah. time, and you need help. Like, okay, so you pulled back the curtain on the fact that you're not everywhere and that you can't cook every plate of pasta. So uh, when you come back to New York, and uh, and why? so why do you come back to such a – a difficult city after how long has it been since you've been here with your own individual project with my with a freestanding project we opened scarpetta in 2008 um so it's been nine years mm-hmm. nine years last independent restaurant here so um you know we're all gluttons for punishment i guess but i'll tell you that the passion is is the driver and, and that's the motivator and uh i really truly feel like Fusco is such a is such a unique space. It used to be Veritas. It, it's kind of hollowed ground to a certain extent for a lot of people. Um, so many regular customers still come into the into Fusco now just because they loved Veritas so much. Um, and I love this, man. I, I just, I mean, there's there's no other. I love this. I love 
spending time in restaurants. I love cooking. I love teaching. I love coaching. I love spending time with the, with the client base and nurturing, uh, not just the team and the service staff, um, but also the customers and the food and really just having that point of view, that brand beacon, so to speak, that one signature restaurant that I could always go back to and be like, everything is great, right? All these restaurants are wonderful. Um, we're, we're, we're moving forward in a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different venues, but I need the one place to be able to hang my hat at all times. And that's, that's what Fusco is. I want to talk a little bit about your family, your uh, you've moved recently to Arizona, mm-hmm. um, and I assume for many, many years you were trying to find that balance between being in the kitchen and, and your business. Um, how how does it feel to be both simultaneously opening this new place that you can hang your hat on, but also are you reaching a point where you're thinking of slowing down at all? <laughs> I'm too young to slow down. <laughs> I, uh, I'll tell you – the happiest I ever am is when I'm just spending time with my family, right? I mean, that's, you know, I have two little girls, seven and four, and that's, that is the core. That's the the most important thing in my world. Um, and I, you know, you, you got to work, you got to make a living. I have a, I, I like to think that I have a pretty tremendous work ethic. Um, I love to work also. And so ultimately as an entrepreneur, it's the, it's the most selfish thing that I could do is to continue to work the way I work because I, I, first of all, I love it. Um, second of all, I'm creating it for myself. All right. It wasn't necessarily in the cards in 1985 when I started working at the sea loft. It wasn't, it wasn't in the cards back then. This, what chefs are doing today didn't exist, right? This, this station didn't exist back then, right? The food network didn't exist back then. There was no such thing as restaurants or chefs owning more than one restaurant. Like just didn't exist. So, I feel like I'm in a very fortunate time, um, and, I, and I feel like a lot of chefs are taking advantage of that. When you're back in New York, I'm curious about where you're liking to eat besides your restaurants. What's inspiring you? I don't really want to hear about, like, you know, uh, we can glaze over, like, food trends, but I'm curious, like, what are some places that, to you, epitomize New York dining? And then if there's anywhere new that's really, like, jumped yeah. out at you on your on your radar. This is really pathetic. Um, but I, I work way too much. I really do. (laughs) I'm like, I'm in Fusco every single night when I'm in New York. So, uh, I'm, that's, that's, I'm not eating out, unfortunately. Um, but I'm also an old school guy. I, I, I go to Jean George for lunch every chance I get. I think it's the, the best lunch deal in Manhattan. When you walk in there and you get three courses for $40 or whatever it is at a four star and truly have a four star experience. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I like the, I like, I like fancy restaurants. So I'm going to, you know, I, I, I like to go to those things. There's been many times in my career where I've literally spent my last dollar, uh, back in the day when, when Grey Coons was at Les Panas, I'd literally spent my last dollar there multiple times, maxed out the credit card at, at dinner. Um, so what what is it for you about the experience of going to that style of restaurant? Because you know some chefs like to go to Chinatown and yeah. get a five dollar plate of something. For you, yeah. you're you're looking for that kind of high end experience. You There's, you were when you were younger when yeah. you couldn't afford it, and you That's still right. are now. Can you speak about what about that? You know, either motivates you or makes you feel good. I, I think there's an aspirational aspect to it that 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 is exciting for me. Um, I, I love luxury. 
I just do. I don't know why. My mother said, you have a, when I was a kid, I remember saying to me, you have a champagne taste and a Budweiser budget, she would always tell me. <laughs> so, but, you know, there's also, there's a word in, uh, in Turkish called kef, right? My wife is Turkish. So, um, and it's that moment where you just kind of exhale, that relaxation comes in. And, and when I go to restaurants that I really love to experience, they don't necessarily even have to be super fancy restaurants, but it seems to happen more often because they have their shit together. Right. So that moment of just <sighs> so relaxing. I love that. I love that. Your wife is Turkish. You said that you're, before we went on air, you said that uh, your kids are going to go spend some time yeah. with their grandmother in mm -hmm. Turkey, right? For over the summer. Uh, is that, has any of that crept into your cooking at all? Does your wife cook at home? Are those flavors that you use either in or outside of your restaurants, has it influenced your style in any way? It, it's, and different things. I, I, you know, if I do a Mediterranean aspect of a restaurant, if I do a restaurant that's, I, listen, I've opened a lot of restaurants. I've also closed a lot of restaurants. So one of the restaurants that I closed had a, a Mediterranean accent to it. Um, uh, so the, I'll do things like that when it calls for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've spent so much time in Turkey over the years. Uh, I got married there. We, you know, we're, we're, it's just, it's become part of my, part of my life. Um, and my wife is a hell of a cook. She does that, that Turkish food really well. Yeah. Since you just brought it up, I have to ask, what does it feel like to, to close a restaurant? Oh, it sucks, man. I'm closing one today. As a matter of fact, what do you do? DOCG in Vegas is closing. Um, it sucks. It's, it's, uh, you know, first of all, you think of all the things you could have done differently to make it work. Uh, you think about how many people you've employed and how this is going to affect their life. So, you, you know, you try to place them and, and, and make their life better. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's sad. And it, but also I, I'm not one of those people who fall in love with brick and mortar. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a feelings guy, right? I'm an energies guy. And when energies are off, things things fall to the wayside you know um and i think that's one of the reasons what's happened to docg um and it's it's uh it's disappointing um and i'm disappointed in myself because i want to you know i want to be jesus i want to fix shit i want i want everybody i want to save everybody you know? <laughs> so as you open up a place and close another place and you're still a young guy but you're kind of reflecting on what is what has happened over the course of your career is there something that you look back and is there a pivotal moment in which you wish you could have changed something? Are you a reflections guy or are you a forward facing? I'm, I'm always forward facing, but I think you can learn from, from your mistakes. I think that's, I think it's important to put yourself in a situation to, to, to pursue betterment. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's about tweaking things, right? It's, it's, uh, if I were to do it again, if I were to do it all again, um, I'd have better lawyers. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Scott, I'm gonna, we're going to end on that. Uh, for all you uh, wannabe business owners out there, heed some advice from Scott. He says, get a good lawyer. Uh, I appreciate you joining me today on the line. Tell everybody where they can find your new restaurant in New York City. Fusco, 43 East 20th Street. 
we appreciate you joining us today, and hopefully uh, we'll have you Thank back you. on again to talk about uh, new restaurants and hopefully uh, no future closures. God willing. Join us every week here on Heritage Radio for a new episode of The Line, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.